Tuesday as well. Um, I'm sure many of our congregation are uh, on holiday today, maybe camping. I know that many are, and we pray that God will bless them wherever they are as well. Um, Today we're going to continue with our study in Mark, and if you would open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verse 1, we can read the Word and you can follow along and uh, take it in what the Lord is saying. Let's begin at verse 1 of Mark chapter 9. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come in power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led, and with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were standing with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them the orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Amen. Let's pray as we come to this portion of Scripture that the Holy Spirit would open it up to our minds and our hearts. There's so much in this portion of Scripture that we can't even possibly uh, attempt to cover it all this morning. So we'll be choosing a few things. Let's pray that the Lord will illuminate our hearts and speak to everyone wherever we are today. Lord, we come to your living and powerful and active word We thank you for it. We thank you for all those men that you use to communicate your word to us. Thank you for the ones whose names are in the books here. We thank you for the people who translated it into English for us. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray that he will illuminate our hearts, that no one will leave here today without a word from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we, if you were here, you will have studied up to uh, the end of chapter 8. And um, in that chapter, we heard of Jesus' impending death and uh, the things that lay ahead for him. We heard of Peter's rebuke of Jesus, and then in turn, Jesus' rebuke of Peter. And we learned that even a believer can, and a believer is you and I, are you and I, we can in the same breath Bless God with the most profound truth and yet at the same time say terrible things, satanic things in the same breath. And that was 
what Peter had done. And then in this chapter that we have just right in front of us, he says completely stupid things as well. Yeah, he didn't even know what he was saying. Then the phrase, after six days, that tells us that what we're studying right now happened consecutively in a sense. It follows on from the last story and shows us uh, that what lies ahead is linked with what happened before. It involves a very, very strange happening, an otherworldly experience. I don't know if any of you have had one of these otherworldly experiences, but certainly Peter, James, and John experienced something that was, in a sense, out of this world, but yet very much in it. Heaven became visible and audible, a visible and audible meeting of heaven and earth right there on top of the mountain. I want us to notice um, a little word, up. The upward movement here. Jesus took Peter and James and John with him and led them up a high mountain. Here Jesus is taking his inner circle, Peter, James and John, up to have a profound experience of God himself. And so many of the key episodes in the Bible have happened on mountaintops. Have you noticed that? High places in the Bible are very, very important where heaven meets earth. And so we have, for, for example, the law was given to Moses on a mountain called Sinai. And then the blessings and cursings in Deuteronomy chapter 28 were given on a mountain called Ebal. Then the power encounter of Elijah with the prophets of Baal happened on a, a mountain called Carmel. And then Calvary, of course. That was Mount Calvary, where Jesus was crucified. And the ascension took place on the Mount of Olives, and now the Transfiguration. And some people say it was Mount Hermon, which is the highest mountain in the region. It's about 9,000 feet high. Or others say it's Mount Tabor. And uh, they're not sure, really. But there, on that mountain, wherever it was, God spoke audibly, and something of heaven came down in the sight of these three men. There was an upward movement to the top of the mountain. And there was a stop at the top. It wasn't a permanent settlement. I want us to realize that the meeting at the top of the mountain wasn't permanent. Those men came back down again. And uh, Peter may have wanted them to stay a long time. That's why he said something really silly, like, let's build three shelters. Um, possibly there wasn't even material up there to build anything, but he said it anyway. You know, the strange thing is, I was looking up um, and researching where that mountain was. And then, of course, that's where I found out that it was possibly Hermon and possibly Tabor. And when I looked at Mount Tabor, do you know what they have on top of Mount Tabor today? And probably have had for many centuries? A very substantial church. Not just a shelter, but a very substantial stone structure built on Mount Tabor. So Peter's advice may have been taken by a later generation of Christians, but I don't think that's what God intended, that people would stay up there. You know, when was the last time you've climbed a mountain? Anybody climb a mountain recently? Uh, well, anybody? Yeah. Was it high? Was it, was it really high? Anybody climb a mountain higher than 9,000 feet lately? No. It'd be very hard in Australia to do that. There isn't one. Um, I like Ireland as well. We have no high mountains. Um, the last mountain I climbed was Uluru um, last year with... Ben McKenzie and uh, uh, Amber McKenzie and Caleb, my son, the four of us went up there al along with others. 
And uh, for anybody who believes in a flat earth here this morning, we, we realize that the earth is actually curved. We could, every 10 or so meters that we uh, went up the mountain, we could see more mountains in the distance. Then we climb a little more, and then we could see more mountains. That's because of the curvature of the earth. But anyway, that's just an aside. Um, we didn't stay up there, obviously. I'm here today. And we didn't stay very long, maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And we came back down again. Just like these men at the top of the mountain. They went up, they stayed a while, and then they came down. But I want us to look at the little phrase, they were all alone. How many times in the Gospel of Mark have we had that uh, idea of Jesus leading his disciples away to the side just to be alone for a while? Their ministry was so crowded, so many people all the time rushing around and um, sapping their energy perhaps and, and draining them. Not in a bad way, but in, in a good way. And Jesus was taking them uh, aside alone again for a profound experience. And I think the word alone serves two purposes here in this passage. The first purpose is to highlight the contrast between the crowds and the demands of the crowds that they had left behind. But the second one is to emphasize that the fact that suddenly they were not alone anymore. They were alone, and then they were not alone because two visitors came from heaven and were there with them. Now, we have this word. I don't know if we've ever heard of this word outside of the Bible. I, I haven't. It's the word transfiguration. What is transfiguration? The English dictionary says that it's a complete change of form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. I'll say that again. It is a complete change of form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. That's transfiguration. And the Greek word for transfigure, I think you will recognize. It is metamorpho metamorphose. Metamorphose. Does anybody uh, recognize that word? Yeah, it's where we get the word metamorphosis from. And that's the process that a caterpillar goes through to becoming a butterfly. A complete transformation. What similarity or what resemblance has a caterpillar to a butterfly? Very little. Like, I know most girls will recoil at a caterpillar, but they love butterflies. But it's the same being. It's been transformed. So that's what it really means. And in other places in the New Testament, where it says metamorphose, it actually translates it transformation. So it's really a synonym of transformation. Now, I want us to look at uh, four eyes, um, four words beginning with I in this portion today. And the words actually don't come in the portion, but they are about the portion. The first one is God's intention for the transfiguration. What is God's intention for the transfiguration? What purpose did it serve? I believe that the transfiguration, first of all, was for the benefit of Jesus' inner circle. These are the men who would have to shoulder the initiation of the greatest movement that ever came on the face of the earth. You know, do you realize that the Church of Jesus Christ is the largest uh, movement that ever came upon the face of the earth? And these three men would have to shoulder the responsibility of uh, launching that. And I, I believe that this transfiguration was for them, that they would realize what they're dealing with. Realize the forces, the wonderful power of the whole... There's a butterfly. <laughs> That's quite appropriate. That they would realize 
that um, God is powerful and that they're dealing with heavenly beings. James, of course, the Apostle James, he didn't have to shoulder much of it because Herod killed him very shortly after. And that was a, a short existence for him. But these, these men needed this overwhelming experience in order to be able to face the future. And while it didn't help them ultimately uh, in preventing them from denying Jesus, all of them denied Jesus at the crucifixion, it certainly did help them over the, the rest of, your, of their lives. And that was very, very important to them. It gave them reassurance that um, Jesus was powerful, that his message was linked with the Old Testament. That was very, very important. They especially needed it after Jesus told them that he was going to die and be resurrected again. Can you imagine the, uh, the shock that it would have been for them to hear that the Messiah that they believed in was going to die and be resurrected? They certainly needed this, this experience on the top of that mountain that day. And in God's mercy, the transfiguration was there to set up his five-star generals for the task ahead. And secondly, I believe that the intention of the transfiguration was that they would get a glimpse of what true transformation really looked like. I'm not sure if they understood at that point in time that one day they would also be transformed like them, but I know that over time they would have because Peter, um, in his word, in his books, tells how much he appreciates the teaching of Paul. And Paul came to understand in a very clear way that we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ day by day. And it says that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says there, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the transfiguration that happened to Jesus, Moses and Elijah, will also happen to us. Now, the transfiguration that we read about here in Mark is not the first transfiguration that appeared in the Bible. I believe that a transfiguration of sorts happened to Moses when he'd been up the mountain with the Lord, and we read about that in Exodus chapter 34, verse 29. There it says, Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. He was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant. And they were afraid to come near him. Verse 33 says, When Moses finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. So that was the transformation, transfiguration that Moses had um, way early on, um, maybe 1,500 years earlier. And then I believe that in a sense, Elijah experienced something like that as well. Elijah was transported or transformed too. And uh, that happened when, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, it says, as, Mo as uh, Elijah and Elisha were going along, as they walked along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw them no more. You know, um, it doesn't actually use the word transform there, but we know from reading ahead into the New Testament that no one will enter heaven without transformation. So in that transportation 
of uh, Elijah to heaven, there would have been a transformation in him as well. So Moses and Elijah experienced something prior to this transfiguration. It's interesting, isn't it, that these two men appeared with Jesus. Um, One represented the law, one represented the prophets, and they were transfigured as well. But we too, as I mentioned already, will be transfigured. And I want to encourage us this morning, each of us who are living in in a world today that is uh, hard at times. Many people are going through experiences, and I don't doubt that many in here are also going through hard times, hard experiences. But we need to look ahead to the time when we will be transformed, transfigured. For many of us, it's not long. It's not long away. Just buried my mother last week, and uh, it's not that long since I remember her running around after us, four little ones, full of energy and full of strength. And then when I extrapolate, perhaps 30, 40 years down the line, I hope, that will be also my turn. And many of you will be gone before that, and you will be transformed, transfigured into a glorious body. And I would like to read a few verses from 2 Corinthians 3 again, beginning at verse 7. So take take this in, because that process of transformation, believer, has already started in you. You have begun to be transformed inwardly. Maybe even some would say outwardly. I was hearing very recently of a young man who became a Christian and uh, beforehand children didn't like him. Dogs and cats did not like him. But when he became a Christian, all of a sudden, cats and dogs would come up to him and children would come up to him. Why? Because they saw a transformation. They felt a transformation inside. That gives me the goosebumps when I think about it. And that's happening to each believer. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 7 following. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters of stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Then we skip along to verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. Verse 16. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. So, believer, there is scriptural proof that you and I are being transformed. There's no veil over our faces, but people will be able to say, that person is changing, or that person has changed. Has that comment ever been made about you? I trust it has. We are being transfigured. So, I want us to look at the, not only have we looked at God's intention for the transfiguration, but Let's look at the imagery of the transfiguration. I think there's profound symbolism in the transfiguration of Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Moses, as I said earlier, represents the law and Elijah the prophets. They stood there beside Jesus that day, indicating the strong link between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. 
They were giving legitimacy to Jesus and Jesus' legitimacy to them. Jesus was a fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. How many prophets, uh, prophecies were made about Jesus in the Old Testament? Hundreds and hundreds. And he was a fulfillment of all of them. The Gospels say he came to fulfill the law. And um, that the Lord would say something profound about his son on the mountain like this is very significant. God the Father said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. So the law was very important for the, the nation of Israel. It's very important for us. The prophets were very important for the nation of Israel and very important for us. But now God is kind of saying there's something that supersedes them. And that is the voice and the word of his son. I think uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 bears this out very, very clearly. It says there, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So there you have um, almost a commentary on the transfiguration. Jesus was radiating God's glory. And here, this writer to the Hebrews says the same thing. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So that's the imagery, part of the imagery of the transfiguration. The apostles represent the New Testament covenant, and Moses and Elijah re represent the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. So we looked at the intention of the transfiguration and the imagery of the transfiguration. Now the impact of the transfiguration. Can you imagine uh, what the impact of that three-dimensional vision of the glory of Jesus would have in your life if you saw it? Um, I think it would unzip our mouth if we were uh, wit uh, reluctant witnesses of Jesus beforehand. We would become super keen witnesses of Jesus after receiving a vision like that. And I believe that's what happened to Peter and John. We don't know about James, but I imagine it did too. John wrote later on in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, verse 14, um, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. John could truly say that because he was on that mountain that day when Jesus was transfigured before him. And then Peter also wrote about it in 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 through to 18. He says there, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from, the, from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard his voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So the impact of this transfiguration story lasts today through the writings of John and Peter, through their ministry. They recounted what had happened. See, revelation of God to us leads to transformation in our character. 
And it did for them. It did for Peter and James and, and John. You will remember that we said the process of transformation is an ongoing process. Well, I think this is clearly borne out in the lives of the apostles. They weren't absolutely turned around overnight through that um, experience. Their transformation was a progressive one, just as ours is. Um, the more that Jesus revealed to them about himself, the more their lives were transformed. And this is a very important lesson for us as believers. We cannot rely on a, on a day 20, 30, 10, five years ago when we put our lives, our trust in the Lord as being everything that is necessary for our transformation. It's an ongoing uh, process of continued revelation, day by day, hour by hour, learning more about Jesus, seeking more revelation from him in his word, in times of prayer, times of meeting together with his people. I want us to look at the commentary by God the Father in verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud came. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. In this line, who is God speaking to? Well, he's speaking to the three disciples there. Well, he's probably speaking to Moses and Elijah as well. He's asking them to do something. He's commanding them to do something. You remember the first time they heard that audible voice? Uh, at the baptism of Jesus, um, God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This time he adds a little three-letter phrase, a command, listen to him. That, that's so, so important. That is the instruction of the transfiguration. And James, not James who was up the mountain that day, but James, the brother of Jesus, in James chapter 1, verse 22 said, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It's very, very important for us to not just merely listen to the word. Um, I'm sure many of us here today are reading the Bible on a daily basis. Some of us are listening to it even. Um, with the modern technology that we have today, you can listen to the Bible being read to you and you can read it at the same time. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's something that I do every day. I listen to the word of God, but that's only one part of the thing. We need to do it as well. We need to put it into practice, and that's the hard bit. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. We'll take that up later as we go into communion. So if there was an up movement as the Lord led them up the mountain, and if there was a settled, even temporary settle, movement, just staying at the top of the mountain, the stop at the top, then there's also the downward movement. And uh, you may say that's, um, that goes without saying, it's almost too logical to mention, but I think we need to mention the downward movement. How many of you have heard of the uh, phrase mountaintop experience? Yeah. And uh, I trust that those of us who've been on the road with Jesus for a long time now have had several uh, experiences that you could describe as mountaintop experiences. You know, perhaps it was a camp, perhaps it was a retreat, um, or a conference, or a, a special time alone of devotion with the Lord Jesus Christ, where you felt yourself almost transported into another realm, 
where the things of God became really, really clear. You felt deeply the things of God, deep, deep down in your heart. And you called that a mountaintop experience. And you didn't want to leave that camp. You didn't want to go home. But the thing is, we got to come down. We got to come down from the mountain because we don't live our lives up there all of the time. It's really good to have them and it's good to long for them. But we got to realize that most of our lives are lived in the valley or on the plain where we have to meet uh, other people and rub shoulders with them. Amy Grant, um, for those of us who are a little bit older, um, was a, a famous, uh, is a famous American uh, singer, uh, gospel singer, and she used to sing a song called I'd Love to Live on a Mountaintop. And these are the words of the song. I'd love to live on a mountaintop, fellowshipping with the Lord. I'd love to stand on a mountaintop because I love to feel my spirit soar. But I've got to come down from the mountaintop to the people in the valley below. See, Jesus' disciples and Jesus had to go back down to continue their mission. For Jesus, it was dying on the cross, bearing our sins, making a way that we might be reconciled to the Father. For the apostles, it was to suffer and to establish the church of Jesus Christ. They had to go down. And you and I, when we have these mountaintop experiences, wonderful and all as they are, we need to come down and we need to rub shoulders with the people below. We need to communicate the gospel. We need to live our lives here in the plain. But it doesn't mean that when we come down, we are out of fellowship with God. It just means that we, together with him, we labor with him in the valley and in the plain. And if you're longing today to be back on the mountain, remember that you were there for a purpose and that you're actually down here now working out that purpose. May the Lord remind each of us of what that purpose was, that he took us up there to the mountain. So that's the downward movement. And don't be disappointed or disappointed if you are down on the plain. You don't have to be down in spirits because you're down on the plain. You don't have to be uh, under the weather because Jesus is down there with you. You notice that he came down with them. Did you notice that? He didn't stay up there. He went down with them. Now, all of you students of the book of Mark will know that throughout that book, there has been, and also in the other Gospels, there has been the idea of Jesus telling people not to tell anybody what has happened. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed up, up until this point how much success Jesus has had with that command? Not very much. Everybody just went out and blabbered. But this time, it must have... Uh, blessed his heart because the disciples obeyed him. Um, it says there in verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And then verse 10, they kept the matter to themselves. Jesus must have been very happy. Discussing what rising from the dead meant. So just so that we know that Jesus was at least obeyed once in that command, uh, this is inserted for us. And I think this highlights the importance of obeying Christ unquestioningly. Why in the world did he tell them not to tell? Well, I don't know. I don't really know. I suppose if I did a lot of research, some people might come up with a, a reason that might satisfy me. But there's one thing sure. Jesus knew why he asked him not to tell. And for the disciples, it was important that 
they obey him. And I think then it's important for us, really vitally important for us to obey unquestioningly what the Lord asks us to do. Now, coming towards the end of our passage, there's a little bit about Elijah and John the Baptist. Verse 12. Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. See, to understand this, I think we need to go back to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, following. There it says, Malachi says, it's the Lord's voice, I believe, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Then in Luke 1, verse 17, that verse is repeated. So Luke 117 is the birth narrative of Jesus, and it's about John the Baptist as well. Verse 17 says, And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John the Baptist really was the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Elijah had come to fulfill the prophets. Elijah really, this John the Baptist, was the fulfillment of the prophets in the Old Testament sense. He was the last real Old Testament prophet. And uh, if you, if you uh, have maybe been at a Bible college, you will have understood that there were 400 years in which there was no revelation between Malachi and the New Testament. 400 silent years, they call it. And John was the marker which demonstrated that once again the word of the Lord was coming to the people of Israel and to the world. That's just that little appendage. I don't want to go into that any more than that. But in conclusion, remember that if you have had a mountaintop experience, you're coming down now into the valley, to serve the Lord with the Lord. Remember that if you're a true believer, you are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. You, have you got that? If you are a true believer, you are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And as we come to the Lord's table, the admonition is let a man or let a woman examine him or herself. And I think it'd be a really good time to ask yourself the question, am I being transformed into the likeness of Christ? That's a very important marker. Am I being transformed into the likeness of Christ? Because if we're not, we need to probably go back to the basics again and recommit our lives to Christ. Because 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, and we who are and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you perceive that transformation in your life today? Do you perceive it in the lives of those around you? Jesus is the ultimate way in which 
God has spoken to us in these last days. And God's command to us is, listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. As we come to the Lord's table, I want us to listen to some words of Jesus before we partake of the, the bread and the wine. Luke chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, cup he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays me. They then began to question among themselves which of them might be who, did, who, who would do this. I'd just like to ask um, for the council members to come and uh, serve the bread and the wine. And maybe the, the, is the band available? Um, maybe just to pray? Thank you. And uh, after a process of just a, quietly listening to the Lord, Come forward and receive the bread and the wine. And we will hold the wine till we take it all together at the end. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your body and your blood, which were broken and shed for us. We give you thanks for your wonderful sacrifice. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you made the very tree that you would be executed upon, knowing full well the purpose of that tree. We thank you for your determination to save us. We thank you for your efficacy in saving us. We thank you for the power of the blood. We thank you for the power of your righteous life. We thank you for the power that raised you from the dead. And we thank you for the power and the authority and the strength and the foreknowledge and the wisdom which will cause you to reign eternally. Because you are reigning, you've always reigned, but you will once again reign on the earth. We honor you, we worship you, we hold you up, we praise you, and we thank you for your wonderful sacrifice. As we meditate upon your word this morning, the written word and also that voice of the Spirit speaking to us right now as we examine ourselves to see if there is any wicked way in us, 
we ask for your cleansing power. We ask for your overwhelming grace, your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. We thank you for this wonderful little ceremony that you have left us with, that we can weekly or daily or monthly remember you, what you've done. And we want to thank you for the transforming power of Jesus Christ uh, worked out in us through the Holy Spirit and the Word that is transforming us daily into your likeness. We thank you for all of us who have been able to recognize even the minutest change in the positive. And we pray for everyone who's struggling to notice a change. That this day may be the day when they really commit their lives to you. And from this day forward, there will be exponential change, transformation, something that cannot be described as reformation. In, or, in other words, reorganizing the furniture, but transformation, totally new furniture. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and we declare you to be Lord. Let's all just say after me, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord.